Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute, dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. My name is Caroline Roberts, your host for today, and we have three guests on today's show for you. First, I'll be speaking with Joe Carter, senior editor at Acton, on minimum wage and the debate surrounding the fight for 15. Then we have an econ quiz segment for you with Dave Hebert, professor of econ at Aquinas College, and John Caritas, executive director at Acton. John and Dave recorded this segment on the stock market boom on January 23rd, but since then, the market has dipped a bit. Radio Free Acton and its guest economists will keep an eye on it for you. Lastly, I'll be speaking with Father Ben Johnson, Senior Editor at Acton, on the 2018 Oxfam Report. So without further ado, let's jump into our first segment. My name is Caroline Roberts, producer of Radio Free Acton, and I have a special guest on the show today. We have Joe Carter, who is Senior Editor of Acton Institute, and he will be speaking a little bit more about an article he wrote earlier in January that is called 11 Things You Should Know About Minimum Wage. You can find this article at blog.acton.org. Joe, thanks for coming on the show today. Well, thanks for having me on. So in this article, you began by stating that as is becoming the New Year's theme, minimum wage increased on Monday, which would have been January 1st, in more than a dozen U.S. states, 18 to be exact. And you say the goal is to lift people out of poverty. So I want to start from the beginning. When exactly did the debate surrounding minimum wage begin? Well, mostly it started around the turn of the century. The, uh, the first state minimum wage was in Massachusetts in, in 1912. And the first federal minimum wage started in, uh, federal minimum wage was in 1938 under FDR. Has the debate surrounding this, has it evolved at all, or would you say it's pretty much involves the same sorts of arguments? Uh, I definitely think it's evolved. Uh, historically, minimum wage laws have been used to kind of discourage immigration and oppress the poor and minorities. That was kind of the, the reason for raising the wage is to kind of undercut Im, um, immigrant labor, undercut uh, minority labor. Um, by raising the minimum wage, you could kind of uh, prevent uh, those kind of people from being, getting jobs. Um, and so it kind of secured the, the jobs for the predominantly white male population at the time. And would you say that now probably the purpose of raising the minimum wage has almost completely done a 180? Now it's uh, being purported as helping those, um, you know, those in the minority class rise. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I think, uh, I think both sides of the debate now on the minimum wage have the same goal in mind, which is uh, defense of the poor and helping the poor get more um, more wages. Uh, the difference is the, the minimum wage proponents think that this is the, the most effective way, and the minimum wage opponents like me think it's it's not only um, not helping the poor, but it's actually harming the poor by, by preventing them from getting the skills they need to make more money in the, in the long term. Why do you think that it's so hard to notice that there is an, a common objective between both sides of the debate? Well, I think as, as in most political debates today, uh, we gain, we seem to think we gain more from uh, demonizing our enemy, our, our political enemy, our political opponents, and making them seem like they're um, uh, they have the worst motives. Um, and I think that happens on both sides of this debate. And I think if we if we find common ground and say yes, we all have the same objectives, let's find the most empirical based ways of getting there. We make a lot more progress in this. And I think. Um, we're, I think we're starting to see that slowly, but I think it's 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 been hard, and I think we're still seeing a lot of 
negativity on the, the people, especially the um, uh, the push for the fight for 15, trying to get the wage rate to $15 an hour. I think they're, um, they assume the worst motives. Uh, but I think that um, usually even minimize opponent, proponents, uh, such as liberal economists, they're more on our side because they kind of understand a little clearer what effects the minimum wage has on the poor now. So there's kind of coming around to, to understanding that we do have, we do share some common goals. And to explain that a little bit more, you provide 10 helpful points in your article. And although I'd like to go through all of them, we don't have too much time. So I would like to go through a few of them that jumped out to me. Um, so, an increase of minimum wage, would you say that's something that all economists would argue against? I think there is probably a belief that, oh, well, all economists don't want an increase of minimum wage. Is, would you say that's true? No, there's uh, there's many economists that think small increases in minimum wage will have a minimum or no effect at all on the, on the labor uh, labor market. And I think that's a, that's an interesting question. It's kind of been debated in um, we don't we don't have a lot of empirical tools to really determine whether that's true or not. Um, and I think even conservative economists would agree that if the minimum wage is under um, the the floor for, for actual labor, then it's probably not having much of an effect. Uh, but we're talking about small increases in minimum wage, you know, um, less than 20 percent. And when we start talking about the, the minimum wage, like the fight for 15, where we um, trying to get to what's called the living wage, which is $11 or more an hour, 12 to $15 an hour, then I think most economists agree that, yeah, that's not, that's, that's going to definitely affect the labor market and especially low, um, low-skilled workers. So when you talk about it affecting low-skilled workers, what does that demographic exactly look like? Well, a lot of the low-skilled workers are, are people who um, may have come to this country. They don't have a lot of uh, the, the language skills, um, they may have had, you know, good jobs in their country, but they come here and they, because they can't speak English um, proficiently, they're not able to get, um, you know, higher paying jobs. So it's a, it's a way for them to get their foot in the door, uh, working um, lower wage pay. Uh, also, um, uh, young people who don't have skills yet, especially in um, lower income communities, where they, they don't have an opportunity to go to college, so they need some way to get their um, get the skills they need, even basic skills like being, being able to show up on time and being able to take orders from a manager, those kind of skills. So those are the the, the types of um, the types of low skilled labor that are usually uh, go into the the market for minimum wage uh, jobs. So are we already starting to see the effects of this increase in minimum wage? Um, is this, and if we are starting to, is this a, a result of already the increase since uh, January 1st? Or how soon would that have been? Um, I don't know. How soon would the impact have been felt? Well, a lot of the, the, a lot of the raises that came on January 1st, uh, there were all, there are incremental raises that have already been in place. Like, for example, in California, they've tried to, to move to the um, $15 minimum wage over a couple of years. So some of these wages have been increasing uh, for the past few years. So we're kind of starting to see the effects uh, from several years ago of how these and some of these, such in Seattle, where they've had you know massive increases um, rather quickly. We're starting to see that it does have a really, a really negative effect, especially on certain industries like the the restaurant industry, um, the the food industry, 
things like that. So we are starting to see, and it's I think within the next five years, we're really going to have the definitive answer on how the minimum wage affects low-skilled labor. I think the, um, the answers are starting to trickle in, but I think as states move to raise the uh, minimum wage very quickly into higher levels, then it becomes much more obvious about how the, uh, the supply and demand curve affects uh, the labor, labor market. When you say negative effects, what specifically do you mean by that? Um, do you mean that perhaps the employees or the employers are themselves being hurt as a result? That's a, that's a good question. There's a lot of people that have different takes on who gets hurt on the minimum wage. Uh, a lot of the pro-business people tend to focus on how it affects small business owners. Uh, my own personal uh, take is that small businesses tend to do fine. They don't tend to be that. Um, they, they, they have a way of getting around the minimum wage by hiring less or automating more. Uh, the ones who are really affected are the poorest people who, who don't have a way to get the skills they need to get a good job. Um, and those are um, what's what they call in the 1930s, the forgotten man, the people who we don't see because we don't really look at them. We can see that how it affects the business owner because it's pretty obvious that he has to make changes to, or she has to make changes to the, um, how many people they hire or increase their prices. But what we don't see is the person who, who isn't living in inner city and is trying to make it ahead and doesn't have the skills or the capacity to go to college and has no other way to make a living because they're, Price out of the job market. Just, their value of their labor is just not up to eight dollars, ten dollars, fifteen dollars an hour, and so they don't have the ability to get the skills to make the labor worth more. Uh, so I think that's the the ones that we really should be looking out for. So obviously we can't control, um, you know, the ups and downs of markets, but I'm wondering what can be done. Uh, I don't know broadly for the economy that can perhaps. Um, dampen the negative effects? Like, how, how can you see this eventually turning around? Well, I think one thing we could do is is to eliminate or reduce or even just stop raising the minimum wage and let it kind of flatten out for a while. I think the uh, the best approach would be, of course, to, to repeal all minimum wage laws and just let the market take effect. But I think if we could just kind of quit hurting people by keeping increasing it, because the more you increase it, you're uh, everybody has a certain value for their, their labor. Uh, some people are worth eight dollars an hour. Some people are worth five dollars an hour. Some are worth eleven. The higher you raise it, the more people you're pricing out of the market, and you're keeping them from getting any type of jobs. Um, so what happens is the, when you keep increasing it, it, that you're pricing these people out of the market, and you're and you're causing other people to come into the market who usually wouldn't. For example, um, white suburban teenage girls. They're the they're the main people who are making minimum wage in America because as it goes higher, it attracts them. You know, they don't necessarily have to work, but once you, once it makes it um, enticing enough, they come and take the jobs, the malls or fast food places. Um, so I think the, the key thing we could do is just kind of stop uh, raising the minimum wage to stop hurting the people who it's most affecting right now. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Joe. Well, thanks for having me on. This is Kellen Roberts for Radio Free Acton. Welcome to Econ Quiz. I'm your host, John Caritas. Our guest today is David Hebert. He's an assistant professor in the Econ Department at Aquinas College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Welcome back, David. Hey, thanks for having me. Today we want to quiz you on the stock market. Some pretty amazing things happening. The 
quick statistical abstract. Dow Jones Industrial Average up 31 plus percent in the last 12 months. In the last three months, almost 12 percent. The S&P 500 up more than 24 percent in the last 12 months and up more than 10 percent in the last three months. So there's a lot of enthusiasm out, of, out there, a lot of uh, interest in what's going on in the stock market. So we'd like you to help us understand how this this uh, amazing run is connected to the overall economy, what we make of it, uh, what factors might be driving the enthusiasm in, in markets. Uh, tax reform may be an issue, uh, business confidence. And we also have a fairly rosy outlook for economic growth. Uh, IMF just released a new report uh, yesterday. So what do we make of it? <laughs> so this is the question that economists get all the time. We always ask, you know, if the stock market goes up, what we think uh, caused that. If it goes down, we're always asked, you know, what we think caused that as well. And, and everyone kind of looks to us as if we have all the answers. And we do have some answers. So we see uh, business confidence has been restored over the last 12 to maybe 18 months at most. We see um, investment spending is starting to increase and tick up. And I think a lot of that has been captured in this new tax reform. So what we see is the corporate tax rate dropped from, I think, 35% down to 21%. And that's just only going to spur investment in businesses, which will be captured by increased profitability for each company, which in turn is captured by higher stock prices. Well, especially following the financial crisis 2008-2009, one of the big uh, concerns was the unwillingness or inability of major corporations to invest and spend money. I mean, everyone was freaked out. So you get a sense that finally the purse strings are being loosened up a little bit now? Yeah, I think they are. I think what you saw or what you've seen up until very recently is is companies sort of offshoring as much of their profits as they can because, as you and I both know, we faced some of the highest corporate tax rates in the world, at least among the developed world. And so repatriating some of that money back into the United States only lends itself towards increasing the value that's picked up in the stock market. Yeah, the tax reform debate, um, as it rolled out, there was a lot of hope that we'd have a simplified uh, easier uh, tax law. It didn't quite turn out that way, given how things work in Washington. But um, a lot of good did come out of it. Uh, and so you see things like corporations giving their employees bonuses, corporations announcing like Apple, they're repatriating uh, money and investing here. So on balance, the tax reform uh, law seems to have done a lot of good. What do you think it did? Um, how familiar are you with the way it played out in terms of stemming the tide of crony capitalism that the tax law has been a real sandbox for for decades? Yeah, so taxes have been, a, a, as you said, a huge sandbox for crony capitalism basically since their inception. You know, there's always a claim that Everyone else should be taxed for something, but you know, obviously I should be exempt from it for these reasons. And, and everyone can come up with reasons why they should be exempt as well. 
I, I think it's still a little too early to tell what this tax reform bill has had, what the effect this bill has had on crony capitalism and the, the rise or the, the rising tide of, of cronyism. Um, I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic that it'll at least reduce it a little bit. But, um, you know, historical precedent says that not much should change a whole lot. Uh, but we'll see. I still remain optimistic of it. All right. Lastly, um, if the stock market heads south, there's a correction. Does, what does that mean for the underlying economy? I know there could be 30 different factors that make that happen. Um, is the market, are the market fluctuations directly tied in some way uh, to what's underlying uh, those movements here in the economy? Yeah, so the answer to that is, is yes and no. So most of the stock market averages will be somewhere around 30 to maybe 500 companies, and they just sort of weighted average the prices of every stock. And so it's true that when the stock market you know, decreases in value, those companies, their stock prices must have gone down. And there is some connection to the underlying structure of the economy. But I look more towards, you know, are people able to feed their families? Are they able to go to the grocery store? Are, is restaurant spending still maintaining the same levels? And if those things are still true, then the underlying economy is pretty healthy. And it's something about, you know, major companies that the Dow Jones or the S&P 500 is measuring that's really being affected. So I look, I try to focus more on how are people actually doing day to day. If that seems to be going well, then the underlying economy is fine. And we're looking at sort of a statistical bubble. Well, it's heading in the right direction. And uh, this will no doubt continue to be one of the big stories in 2018. So I want to thank you for being here with us today, Dave. And uh, we'll have you back soon. Hey, thanks for having me. Caroline Roberts, producer of Radio Free Acton, and I'm here in Acton's office in their studio. And uh, today I have a special guest. Uh, we have Father Ben Johnson, who is senior editor at Acton Institute, and I have him on the phone with us as our podcast guest. And today we're going to be running over an article that Father Johnson recently wrote for his uh, Religion and Liberty Transatlantic platform on our blog. You can reach this at acton.org slash publications slash transatlantic. So Father Ben, your article is called The Five Biggest Problems with Oxfam's 2018 Income Inequality Report. So I first want to start with the basics. What exactly is Oxfam? Oxfam is uh, an anti-poverty organization based in Oxford in the UK. It was founded by Quakers in uh, the 1940s, and they have a, a mission to try and eradicate poverty around the world. They have offices all over uh, the world, and every year they issue a report based on, uh, at one time they were measuring global poverty. Uh, however, increasingly they are now measuring global inequality rather than global poverty. And every year before the uh, World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, they come out with this report. It gets a tremendous amount of coverage around the world, and uh, that's why it's uh, caught my attention because it has a tremendous impact on some of the most important people in the world when they gather in Davos. So what exactly is the purpose of their annual reports? Well, at one time it was measuring poverty, but increasingly it's measuring inequality. And uh, what, what they are really uh, trying to do is to uh, affect 
uh, policy all over the world uh, for particularly the leaders who are gathered in Switzerland at Davos. Uh, so, for example, they encourage certain kinds of policies within their report. After they measure global inequality, they say, for example, that nations should begin at a minimum by having minimum wages or perhaps having what they prefer uh, to switch from a minimum wage to a living wage, uh, which would be a, a guaranteed minimum all over the world. And that's something that's uh, gotten increasing traction in part because of uh, their significant history and very good work in the past to trying to eradicate poverty. Um, you say that you have five major problems with the recently released report, and I'd like to break them down a bit. Um, hopefully we can get to them all, but I'll try to hit some of the most important ones before our time is up. You state that the report admits that between 1990 and 2010, the number of people living in extreme poverty has halved and continues to decline since then. This has caused Oxfam to focus on economic inequality, as you just said. So what my question is, is what exactly is wrong with wanting to level the economic playing field? Well, there's nothing wrong with wanting to uh, level the economic playing field per se, provided that uh, it, it depends on how it got less than level in the first place. Uh, what, what's really important when we measure uh, global, uh, global poverty isn't so much inequality. Uh, this is one of those quick slights of hand that have taken place. Inequality and poverty are not the same thing. Uh, poverty means desperation. It means the inability to feed one's family, to have adequate food, clothing, uh, housing, and medical care. Inequality just measures how different the incomes are. Uh, so to give you some idea of how, how different it would be, for example, in the United States, uh, we measure uh, inequality of, we measure inequality by what's known as the Gini coefficient, which measures the percentage of difference. In the United States, the Gini coefficient is 41. In the African nation of Burkina Faso, it's only 35. The average monthly salary in the United States is $4,900. It's $150 a month in Burkina Faso. Now, do we honestly believe that people in Burkina Faso are better off because they have less inequality when everyone makes $150 a month, that everyone is happier being desperately poor? Uh, when you look at it in this way, inequality doesn't tell you whether people are doing well, whether people are making it, whether the economy is moving in the right direction and fewer people are in poverty. Uh, so, so measuring inequality in itself is the wrong measure. And then secondly, it's a question of, What's the difference between uh, the systems that created this, this measure of inequality? People don't really, when social scientists look at this and break it down by survey, they find something really remarkable, which is people don't really care about inequality. They care about unfairness. If the system is fair and everyone had an equal opportunity and some people worked harder than others or worked more diligently uh, or chose a different line of work, for example, they don't mind that the outcome is, is unequal. What they care about is the fact that everyone has an equal chance and that the rules are fair. So it's interesting that you also bringing up the fairness point because um, my next question uh, acts as a good segue. Um, so the report also says that to end extreme poverty, we must also end extreme wealth. And it seems as if they're making this point because they say it's not fair that others get to live in extreme wealth because they have... Uh, more money, that means that they may send others into poverty. Is this true? Why exactly is it go? Is it wrong to go after uh, wealth creation when the real antagonist is poverty? Yeah, so the, the report does have this sort of remarkable statement. It says, to end extreme poverty, we also must end extreme wealth. 
that's sort of like saying to end extreme polio, we have to, extend, we have to end the extreme uh, universal polio vaccine. That wealth is wealth is the antidote to poverty. Uh, we want as much wealth as possible. But the the reason uh, that they use this idea is because they fall into a very common economic fallacy, which is the zero sum fallacy. Uh, and you can see this even in the coverage of the report around the media. Uh, the media circuits will say that. Uh, 81% of economic growth was taken by the, the top 1%, or a certain amount of economic growth made its way into the hands of the top 1%. But it, it didn't simply end up there. It had to be created. And it was created because the people who uh, were in the top 1% invested and uh, created jobs elsewhere. The fact that someone is, is wealthy does not necessarily mean that his wealth was taken at the expense of someone else. And that's the fallacy. The idea is that there is a, a limited amount of wealth, and some people come to the table and take it away, and uh, they leave a bare table for all the rest of us. The fact of the matter is wealth is continually increasing. Uh, global GDP per capita has more than doubled since 1994. So we, we're constantly creating wealth around the world. People have the opportunity uh, to, uh, to have more wealth now because of all the investment that's taking place. Uh, and at the same time, as we mentioned earlier, it's important that we tie these two concepts together. Global poverty has fallen dramatically. It's fallen from 44% of people who lived around the world in extreme poverty in 1980 to 10% now. And they actually changed the definition of poverty during that time to increase the amount of money you could make and still be in extreme poverty. Uh, if it weren't for that, it would be below 10% at this point. At the same time, inequality increased because people were creating wealth uh, the the uh, people who invest the money always make more money than people who are employed, but uh, they are creating wealth and everyone benefits. Uh, so I, I believe we spoke in a previous podcast about the fact that even even poor people benefit when they live in a wealthy society. They have better access to uh, health care, better access to education, generally more freedom, and uh, they tend to have a longer life expectancy if they simply live in a wealthier society. So the fact that wealth is created means everyone benefits, and the rising tide truly does lift all boats. So on a slightly different topic, um, I want to address a surprising point that was brought up in your uh, essay. You say that today's report chides President Donald Trump for appointing a cabinet of billionaires, presumably like Betsy DeVos. Yet many of the people cheering its release may be surprised to learn that under Oxfam's formula that Donald may have qualified as one of the downtrodden. How in the world can did this happen? It's <laughs> an excellent question. You know, the, uh, it, it gives you some idea of just what an unusual measure they use. Oxfam, as I say, doesn't really measure poverty. They measure inequality, and they don't even measure inequality of income. Uh, what they measure is what they call inequality of net wealth, which means they'll take your net assets, uh, which means they take total assets and subtract total liabilities. So if someone has just graduated from Harvard Law School with half a million dollars in student loans and just got hired at a $400,000 a year job on Wall Street, that person would be poor because he's $100,000 in debt. So if you take Donald Trump, for example, we know he had several bad years of business in the 1990s. It's possible potentially that he lost more money than he made at some point, and he could have had a massive negative wealth. Uh, ratio according to Oxfam's idea. So uh, the greater in debt you are, the more poor you are. Uh, they have this unusual, by their definition, uh, virtually no one in China is poor. 
because even the poorest farmers own things outright. They aren't in debt, whereas someone like Donald Trump could have been hundreds of millions of dollars in debt for all we know and uh, continue to be uh, to live in Trump Tower and so on, have a, have a palatial existence and uh, an opulent lifestyle. And yet he would be considered one of the world's poorest people, and someone in China, Burkina Faso or, or Nepal, would be considered uh, someone who has a net positive wealth ratio and therefore would be wealthier than Donald Trump. It just shows you how unusual and really how off the mark their measure is. So it seems as if they're not only are they completely off the mark in their estimations of poverty, but that they're trying to correct um, these supposed estimations. Do they see themselves as being almost completely omniscient? Well, there's a point in the report which uh, is really somewhat striking. They assume almost total omniscience by everyone in every corporation as well as every government in the world. Uh, it, it's really unusual. You know, Oxfam every year puts out a report, as we said, and uh, their, their estimates in last year's report, there was a, a tiny little note in this year's report that last year's report was off by more than 700 <laughs> percent in, in its total uh, total uh, uh, decision in terms of how many people own what amount of wealth. Uh, being 763 percent off is kind of a large inaccuracy. But um, they, they at the same time expect every government to be able to determine how many people are making what salary, what a living wage would be uh, in advance, prospectively, from year to year. And they expect everyone to be able uh, to enforce that policy at a government level. Not only governments, but what really struck me in the report, uh, they suggest, and, and this is a suggestion, it isn't a, a mandatory government uh, policy that they suggest, they say every corporation would be able to um, refuse to pay any dividends until everyone in the corporation makes what they define as a living wage and to make sure that everybody in their supply chain pays a living wage to all of their employees. So you would have to have a massive, can you imagine being the CEO of a corporation and trying to find out what everyone who supplies every one of your suppliers pays every single one of their employees, and whether that's a living wage of this year or not in every country in which they do business? Uh, you would have to have an almost omniscient level of knowledge to be able to define that. So uh, I, in order to do that, uh, you truly need more information than any one person or any one government or any corporation uh, is designed to have. Corporations aren't designed to do this. They're designed to create wealth, serve people, create products, and hopefully give people what they want. If they do, they'll make a profit, and if they don't, they'll go out of business. So uh, I think that we should probably turn this around and Oxfam needs to begin to measure what's truly important to measure poverty instead of, uh, instead of inequality. It needs to look at uh, the fact that wealth is the answer. It's not the problem. And uh, we need to focus on creating the pillars of a healthy society like a rule of law, private property rights, and freedom of speech, and lowering the barriers to entry into the workforce, which allows people to get their foot in the door and eventually to rise through the, to the complete height of their talents. And... Uh, Stop placing hurdles in the way of them and those who would give them a job. That's a great note to uh, end this episode on. Thank you very much for joining me today, Father Ben. Thank you as always. And that closes out this week's episode. Thank you to all our podcast guests and listeners today. If you'd like to learn more about our work at the Acton Institute, swing by our events page at acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G slash events. There you can view a whole calendar of our events, 
and you can register there for our next event on February 8th in Grand Rapids on bettering the measurement and outcomes of charitable gifts. Also, if you have questions for the Radio Free Acton team that you would like answered in future episodes, leave a message at 888-705-4180 or email us at rfa at acton.org. This episode was produced by Caroline Roberts and audio engineering by Nathan Moore.